listening to Thunder Radio, the podcast of the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Centre. Welcome to our show today, everyone. The University of Winnipeg's new Mandatory Indigenous Studies course. There is much that has been said and written recently about it, and that is just one of the things that Kevin Lamoureux and I discussed for this episode of Thunder Radio. Kevin is an instructor at the U of W's Access Program. The Access Program provides mature citizens of Winnipeg's inner city with the necessary education and supports to become teachers. And Kevin is dedicated to strengthening the U of W's mission to reach out to non-traditional students. His areas of expertise include working with troubled youth and students and looking at how the culture of poverty can affect school experiences. And after talking with Kevin, I thought, I wish I could take a course from this guy because he is so thought-provoking and engaging. And I hope you think so too. So please enjoy this conversation with Kevin Lamoureux, not the politician as he pointed out for us, but the dedicated teacher and speaker. Enjoy. Um, I'll have you start with telling me a bit about your background and uh, how you got to where you are today. All right. Well, I was thinking about this because it it, it's easy when you uh, have been living a certain way for so long to forget where you come from sometimes. At, at least that happens to me, right? I've been, you know, uh, gotten used to, to being on campus, working at the university. I, I live in a decent house. I drive a decent vehicle. I wear nice clothes. Wouldn't you agree? I, I, I dress very nice, of oh, course, yes. <laughs> right? Um, but, I, you know, I was thinking back to the beginning and, and where I come from. And I've got to say that um, really the defining... Um, sort of experience of, of my early life was was addiction, um, particularly alcoholism. And, you know, as I, I go out and I, I visit schools and I meet young people, a lot of people can relate to this, that for me, when I found um, uh, drugs and alcohol when I was very, very young, uh, to start with at the beginning in those early days, it wasn't a problem. It was actually, for me, the solution. That was, that was sort of the escape from everything that I was carrying around inside the wreckage of my family, post-colonialism, you know, intergenerational trauma, residential schools, poverty, all of those things that I was running away from that I, I wasn't ready to do my healing work on um, were front and center, and, and alcohol and drugs for me were an escape. And, of course, what happens very quickly uh, when you engage in that kind of lifestyle is that quickly that, that, that boomerang turned and, and uh, began to, you know, cut my life to ribbons. And... Um, I was thinking about this, you talk about, you know, how did I get to where I was? And you look back at all these turning points, right? One of the turning points I was thinking about, and I got to tell you this, I, I always assume, this is how stereotypes work, I got to tell you, I always assume that MF Nurk was in the North End. I don't know why I always oh, assume that. I just, okay. And I should have known better, but I, I, I just assumed that we would meet and then I would go down to Nietzsche Foods and go get yeah, some, some Bannock. Yeah. And then well, we've st- moved a few times. Have you? Okay. Yes. Maybe stop by the Friendship Center and visit Michael Champagne. But <laughs> just coming down here to the south to Waverly, is, I could feel the property values going up with every city block I drove further south, but I should have known better. But I was, uh, when I was young, I was, in, uh, I was 18 years old, and this is after that boomerang had turned, and, and my life was becoming chaos, and, and, and the drinking was, was starting to destroy everything that I cared about. I got pulled over with a group of friends, and this is one of those turning mo- uh, points. And These people that I were hanging around with, I call them friends, they were, they were shady people. They were people that were up to, to no good, not living a good life, not living in a good way. And we got pulled over by the police on Dufferin, right beside the Main Street pro- Projects. And uh, I can still remember this clearly. It's one of those memories that stands out in my mind. Um, the police officer came up to the car. We all stepped out, and he started to search the vehicle. 
And I was sitting in the passenger seat that evening. Uh, again, this is, you know, 18 years old, winter evening. This was actually March 20th, 1996. So almost 20 years ago to the day when we were recording, just a couple of weeks off. And um, I was sitting underneath my seat. There were right, not good things, illegal things underneath my seat. And the police officer began to rip apart the vehicle. He opened the console. He opened up the glove compartment. Uh, looked in the back seats, you know, was feeling in between the seats, was checking our pockets. And uh, I understood what was happening in that moment. I went outside and I was sitting on kind of leaning back on the hood of this vehicle, looking out at the sky and the snow was coming down. It's kind of got that pinky orange color when this, the snow was in the Manitoba skies. And I knew what was happening. I knew that I knew that my life was over. I knew that he was going to find what he was going to find. And that was it. With what we were carrying, that's a long time. That's not a Headingley charge. That's a Stony Mountain charge. And I knew that. I was going to end up in the same place as a lot of my uncles had gone to, people that I knew, and that was going to be my life. It was over. And for whatever reason, that evening, um, when he was looking around, he suddenly stopped, told us to get back in the car, and sent us on our way, and he didn't look under the passenger seat. And I, to this day, I call that what you will. Call that blind luck. Call that you know divine intervention. Call that the, a, a loving gesture on the part of the creator. Whatever it was, it's a turning the point. If the cop, if the police officer had finished his job, done what he was trained to do, we would have never met. We wouldn't be having this interview. But instead, it went a different direction. And four days later, I went into the, the AFM and, and started my road towards sobriety and towards um, sort of rebuilding and, and doing the healing work that I had been putting off for all of my childhood at that point in time. We talk about how do I get there. I, I went back to school. I dropped out of high school. I went back to high school, and I was kind of floundering around trying to figure out what I was going to do. thought I wanted to be a truck driver, actually. That was my ambition. And the reason I wanted to be a truck driver is because I had uh, I'd gone to ceremonies in the south, and I had uh, in Duluth, actually, and I met some, some Lakota people, some Cree people, some Ojibwe people. And this was part of this journey that I was on towards sobriety. And one of them drove a truck. And he, he had this beautiful, he, he drove up like a long distance rig, but he also had a pickup truck, which was really nice. He talked about having a big screen TV at home. And I thought, holy smokes, wouldn't that be nice? And so that's, that was my ambition. I thought if I could get to that point, that would be amazing. Wouldn't have been anything wrong with that. But what happened is my high school guidance counselor saw something. This is when I went back to school. He saw something in me and he took me to the, to the campus, to U of W. And I met Mary Young. Uh, Mary Young, who since passed away, and, and Mary Young, um, just out of the, 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 the beauty of her spirit and the kindness of her heart and the strength of her being, um, reached out to me. you got to understand that the, the Native Student Lounge um, looked very different at that time. It was uh, 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 First Nation Student Lounge at the time. Um, wasn't called the Aboriginal Student Service Center. It wasn't the beautiful space we have now. It was in the basement underneath the chapel, so there's all kinds of symbolism there. And it was just Mary. It was just her and, and a bunch of us kids there. And, and she brought me into that place. And out of the rest of campus with this flood of students who, you know, I, I couldn't relate to at all. I felt panicky standing at the bottom of the escalators looking at all these hundreds, if not thousands of kids coming down. But it was there that I felt comfortable. And she actually reached out to me and helped me finish my paperwork. It was like a different language, university paperwork. Um, she helped me get all of my uh, uh, records that they needed. And she literally hand walked me onto campus. And then from there, you know, the journey continues with people like Myra Laramie, people like uh, Laura Fitzner, people like uh, Marlene Atlio, um, people like Ken McCleskey or uh, um, uh, Ed Allen, people that, that reached out to me and sort of had done the hard work in their lives to make it easier on me, right? And if it wasn't for these amazing heroes in my life, these, these, these elders, these uh, uh, 
uh, amazingly strong men and women. Um, again, I don't know where I would have, maybe I would have been driving truck long distance and that would have been fine, but I wouldn't have been able to, uh, to, to meet the young people in my life that I've met, the, the amazing teachers. Meet yourself and come here down to, to Waverly, to, to MF NERC and finally figure out that you're not in the North End, right? So, um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been a journey of, of me standing on the shoulders of giants and, and really sort of walking a path that was already well-tread by people that were um, brave uh, warriors, um, warrior women, uh, trailblazers who, who made this possible for me. Well, you very beautifully answered actually one of my other questions because I was going to ask you about your role, role models mm. um, since I think you're seen as a role model Well, today, thank you. I, but, I, I, uh, that's, that's a blessing if that's true. There's so many, you know, we, we, um, we live in this community uh, here in Winnipeg, Manitoba and across the province where we're blessed with so many role models and so many heroes. Uh, Brian Rice is somebody that uh, has been an elder and, and a guide for me in my life. Um, uh, Dan Thomas, um, you know, other elders in the community that have done so much elder bone. Uh, and then even just within my own generation, people like uh, um, uh, Jamie Wilson, Kevin Chief, Wab Canoe, who was going to the U of M at the same time that I was going Running to the U of W. That's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. He was our he was our associate vice president, vice president at the U of W, and now he's uh, started this new journey, which is is so impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you look at the the generation that's coming up after us, right here on you know on, on my campus at the U of W, Tasha Spillett, Leonard Monkman, um, Kevin Satie, too many others to name. All the people that are part of Red Rising magazine. Um, Wow, we, it's it's difficult to look out at this landscape with with all of the realities and all of the difficulties and all of the post-colonialism and all of the intergenerational trauma to still not feel some optimism when you look into these faces of these heroes that are creating change all around us. MF NERC, for example. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll switch gears a little bit now. You work in First Nations education, obviously, at the U of W. Um, and from what I've read uh, on Google about you, <laughs> I got Googled. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Your work uh, it covers a lot of different areas. So you had to you had to sort past the the images of the politician first to get to yes, me. Oh my yes, goodness, yes. Yeah. I I was actually curious how you dealt with that if people mistake you for all, him or all, you know all the time, all Kim, all the time. It's Aww. it's the bane of my existence. I'll oh, go to dear. do a presentation somewhere and people are are sometimes literally let down that I'm not the politician. Oh, they were excited no. to see the the. Yeah, the MP, and then they just get little old me, and they're just like, oh. oh <laughs> it's, it's heartbreaking to me. Well, I, I actually don't know much about the other Kevin. Okay. Kevin. And he is the other Kevin. Thank you for saying yes. that. I'm, I'm the Kevin Lamoureux. He's the other He's Kevin Lamoureux. Thank you. <laughs> but I did manage to find your you know Bless information you about Thank your work. You. Yep. And, uh, so <laughs> it covers a lot of different areas, as I discovered. So mm. I wanted to maybe chat just about a few of them. Thank you. That stood out to me. Um. So inclusion of Aboriginal perspectives mm. in education, uh, how do you accomplish that or what do you do to push for that? Well, a couple, several years ago now, and we're actually going back almost a decade now, it's been a long time, Manitoba, um, the Manitoba Education Authority here in the province made mandatory that every graduating teacher take at least one course, three credit hours in Aboriginal education. Now, this was, you know, largely undefined. There were definitely goals and visions, but the method to get to that place of, of awareness and inclusion was still being hammered out by, by again, by trailblazers. And it ended up that I, I was teaching that course. And I have to tell you, this is kind of interesting how I ended up teaching this course. My background isn't Native Studies at all. My background is 
it's education, but it's gifted education, which is almost useless in a Manitoba context. It's not the language we use anymore. So I was completely unmarketable as a, as a presenter. And, and I was coasting along. I, I had a fairly comfortable career. I was teaching. I got along well with my students. Everything was fine. But what ends up happening is they, they had a staffing crisis. And, you know, it take, it, it's worth spending a couple of seconds to sort of talk about this, how difficult it can be to teach that course. You know, for many Indigenous scholars who walk into that teaching experience, it can be a hostile environment. And not because the students are bad or not because they have ill intent, but because that course is really at the, the, the front lines of what we're calling truth and reconciliation. That's where the hard conversations are. And you take somebody like Mary Young, who, who since passed away, who taught that course, who has to make herself vulnerable and talk about being a residential school survivor, can be a very difficult environment to tell those stories sometimes. Um, people um, that taught, Brian, Ro Brian Rice, of course, taught that course and you know um, has had to uh, face a lot of difficulties in that. Um, so it was, it, it was this thing that's been very, very hard on the instructors that taught that course, and we had a staffing crisis at the U of W. We didn't have somebody to teach that course. And the faculty approached me and asked if I would give it a try. I think that the only thing that qualified me to teach that course at that time was the fact that I happened to have an Ojibwe father, and that was it. I had no other formal background, which is funny, because if you think about it, if, if you're going to teach Germanic studies on campus, I think you need more than just a German parent. Someone with a German background. Yeah, 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 yeah. right. But for some reason, that qualified me to teach this course, and so I, I took a stab at it, And uh, but I took it very seriously. I, I had about a year to prepare, and I, I jumped in as much as I could trying to get caught up with you know, these superstars, people like Negan Wewudem, James Sinclair from the U of M, people like Frank Deere, people like Laura Fitzner, people that were, you know, uh, giants in this area, just trying to catch up with the conversation. And uh, I was getting ready to teach that course the, the first night. I'm, I'm, you know, getting my books ready. I'm getting all my presentations. I was terrified. I knew how difficult it could be to teach this course. And I actually phoned up a friend of mine, a fellow by the name of, of Kevin Chief, who we mentioned, of course, um, oh, yeah. minister in the government. Yeah. Um, and I said to him, you know, like, I'm feeling really, really nervous about teaching this course. I'm feeling completely inadequate. And actually, he, he came back with a bit of wisdom. He said, well, the reason you feel inadequate is because you, in fact, are inadequate to teach this course, which at the time was like, oh, my God, I, I wish I would have phoned somebody else for some support in that regard. But he, he took the time to explain himself. And he said, look, you, you, you don't have to speak for all Aboriginal people. In fact, you, you shouldn't even try that. That's disrespectful. You speak for you. And you've got your circle of knowledge and where the gift is and where the blessing is is that you've got these connections with people who also have their own circles of knowledge, their own bits of the story. And if you can reach out to them and build those relationships, you'll be able to network with a community that is able to, to speak for itself, right? to give voice, to create the space for that conversation can happen. And I've, I've carried that wisdom with me ever since that I, I don't speak for anyone other than myself, but I do want to be somebody that creates the space for, for good conversations. Mm -hmm. Now, when I walked into that course, again, teaching Aboriginal education on campus is unlike any other course on, on campus. It's not academic. It's very emotional. Um, and you can't test or assess it in the same way. How do you assess somebody's personal growth or willingness to look even at some of their own stereotypes or assumptions, how do you do that? It's, it's very different. And the way that I approach it is, is like this. Um, we start off first talking about our identities, who we are as, as people, our, our notions of culture. You know, and there's a famous academic by the name of Martin Brokenleg who talks about culture, and he says that culture is simply that which seems normal to you. And I introduce that concept to my students, this idea that my culture is everything 
that I just take for granted in my life as being just the way it is. Right? So that when I'm going about my daily business, I'm going to work the way I always go to work. I, I talk to people the way I always talk to people. I tell the jokes. I, I um, do all the things that I do on a daily basis. That's, that's my culture. That's what's normal for me. And what I invite my students to consider is this idea that just because it's normal for me doesn't make it normal for anybody else. And school is really a place where normal is reinforced. Normal comes with a lot of assumptions. Normal is measured on tests. Normal becomes the gateway to university entrance courses. And I think that what we're trying to do is, is not only include Indigenous perspectives because it's healthy and because that's part of our legacy here in Manitoba, it's part of our place, it's part of our history, um, but because in expanding business as usual in schools by, by taking the perspective that's already taught in schools and extending that to include more perspectives, what we're doing is, is increasing the experience of belonging for students. We're making school a place where my normal is just as safe as your normal and, and together we can learn from each other and really sort of move towards this thing that we call truth and reconciliation. Um, I see Indigenous inclusion not as a uh, uh, something that's added on to curriculum. I see it's something that's woven into curriculum. I think, see it's something that is a benefit to all students. And I say this regardless of where my students come from, and, and my students are good people. There's something about education that attracts good people. I have a class of, of students right now, and, and they're such a joy to work with, and they bring such enthusiasm to their careers, and, and it's such a, a gift for me to, to be able to work with them. Um, but inside of this, what we have is this opportunity to, to really understand that if we're doing Aboriginal education the right way, everyone should feel a sense of belonging because of that. Everyone should feel a sense of joy. Everyone should feel a sense of safety. I think that this is something that is uh, academically rigorous and intellectually engaging. It's fun. It's exciting for students. Um, it's a place where I think really, really meaningful teaching and learning can happen. And, you know, at the same time, we get to to carve out our experience with, with truth and reconciliation. If we're doing this right, where schools were once used as a weapon against children, the schools that we negotiate and create together today can be places of healing, where that healing journey that I was on can take place, where that, that healing work that needs to be done for so many people, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people alike, can happen. Right. I just saw a quote on social media today. I think it was actually my, my beautiful wife, Jennifer, that posted this uh, quote from, from Marie Sinclair, who said that, you know, at the same time that First Nations kids were getting these awful messages about their culture in residential schools, the rest of Canadian children were getting that same message about Aboriginal people, right? That Aboriginal people, that culture was without value, was without worth, and it needed to be left behind. Right? Because you have to have some sort of way to justify to your citizenry why this awful thing is happening. It's for their own good. So, of course, you know we recognize that truth and reconciliation is about creating healing for First Nations people, for intergenerational trauma. But all of Canada, I think, is on a healing journey now to repair itself, to, to really start working towards its full potential as a country. And that triggered in my mind another question um, that is, isn't on my list of questions, mm. but okay. um, I am always curious about this. What do you say to people who say things like, oh, well, you should just get over it? Mm. I hear that a lot, and it's part of the conversation. And there's a couple of things to, to keep in mind about that. You know, if we were to, you know, in our own lives, in our own personal lives, if we knew somebody, family member, a friend, even an acquaintance who we know had experienced sexual abuse or physical abuse, 
and we were sitting down and talking to them, no one would say to that person, just get over it, just, right. yeah. just walk it off. That's not the way we talk to one another. That's, that's just not the way we behave. But if you understand the psychology of otherness, which is something that I teach with my students, where that come from, it's not justified, but it begins to make a little sense. The idea of otherness for me is that when my normal, when my culture comes into conflict with somebody else's normal, when the way that I live, the, when the way that I view the world, when the things that I hold dear come into conflict with what somebody else believes or lives or holds dear, that can be a breeding ground for what I refer to as otherness. And that's actually language that has been taught to me. The idea that they're, they're not us, that group of people, they're, they're not who we are, that's them. Mm-hmm. And whoever them are, whether it's the difference between rural and urban, or men and women, or gay and straight, or rich and poor, or north end, south end, or um, Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal, no matter who that group is, it's me drawing a line in the sand and saying, first off, we're not the same, and secondly, that's a problem for me, that, that otherness. And for me, otherness is that psychology and group out group psychology, but it's a it's a continuum. Sometimes it starts like this. Sometimes it starts with, you know, these jokes that we hear where people say, you know, I'm not racist, but <laughs> which means you're about to hear something racist or, you know, I'm not sexist, but which means you're about to hear something ignorant. Right. Um, but whether it's a joke or whether it's violence or whether it's abuse or whether it's racial slurs or whether it's a silly mascot on a sports team or whether it's a policy or whether it's the Indian Act or whether it's genocide. For me, it's all part of this experience of pushing that other group of people further and further and further and further away. And so I would say that a big part of education is about deconstructing otherness. Kids, young children don't come into the world um, with a sense of us and them. There's just us. That's natural. That's who we are. That's the, the sacredness of youth. We learn that. And if we learn it, My belief is that we have to be able to unlearn it. We have to be able to create educational experiences where we can deconstruct that. I think a lot of those comments, like, why don't you just get over it, comes from otherness, right? If you saw those people as being the same as you and your people, the people that you identify with, you wouldn't talk to them that way. That's just not the way that we behave as ethical, moral human beings. But there's another factor to this. One basic bit of wisdom here about you know human beings and human wellness is that if you're going to heal from an injury it's it's necessary to remove the source of the injury in the first place all right if you have a splinter you don't heal from the splinter till you get rid of the splinter if you have a broken bone you don't heal from the broken bone until you set it if we're going to heal from social injustice we're going to have to remove the source of the social injustice in the first place Let's not forget that the you know Indian residential school system was created through and as a part of the Indian Act. And the Indian Act is still very much alive and exists in Canadian politics. Cindy Blackstock, you know, famous academic in Canada, somebody who just won the court case. No, sorry, not the court case, the the human rights rights. case um, uh, that said that um, the way that First Nations kids are treated on reserve is a discrimination against their human rights. That woman, that beautiful human being, that hero who won that human rights case, I've heard her say in presentations that we are the last Western industrialized nation on earth that enforces federal race-based laws based upon blood contact. This is the basis for apartheid-like systems. That's the Indian Act. We're the last people on earth that do that. For so long as that thing exists, um, the idea of just get over it is absurd because we haven't removed the source of the social injustice. Indian residential schools just came out of the Indian Act a couple of years ago. The last Indian residential school closed in 1996. 
So for the you know case of education, educators, I asked them this question. If the last residential school closed, and of course there are schools where people live that still exist, but I'm talking about these mandatory systems that come from the Indian Act. If they closed in 1996, what's the likelihood that a teacher is going to work with either the child or the grandchild of a survivor? It's either 100% or close to 100% Manitoba. Those are the only two options. And so I think that we will heal. I've, I've done my healing work, I think. My life is very different. My daughter's life is very different. Um, but it doesn't mean that I forget. And, and Wab Kanu has said this as well. When he shared his story about his father and his father's journey, he wrote about this in the beautiful book that he wrote, The Reason That You Walk. Um, in Wab Kanu's family, they're over it, but we don't forget. And we don't um, sort of slough off this responsibility that we all have to try to find a way to... to um, eventually remove and heal from the long-term effects of the Indian Act. So that's what I would say to people when they say, why don't you just get over it? Well, we are. We are, and the healing work is happening. And uh, there's so many things to be optimistic about, but we still have a lot of social justice issues here that are our issues. There was a woman in, in the media here in Winnipeg a couple of years ago during our, our civic election when we were hiring, or electing a mayor, hiring a mayor, electing a mayor, <laughs> If only it were he that simple. Yeah, I suppose, <laughs> from a perspective. Um, yeah, so th when we were electing our mayor, one of the candidates' wife, Lori Steves, who the spouse oh, of Gord Steves, cool. was, you know, uh, discovered to have said something on her Facebook about, you know, those those native people, those drunken natives. I don't want my tax dollars going blah 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 blah. All right. Here's a woman who was extremely well educated, to the best of my understanding, she was a lawyer, and yet somehow it was possible for her to go through her entire educational experience and not learn anything about those other group of people. She's been affected by the Indian Act, not as much as the people that were living on the streets and, and uh, poverty and hardship, but she's certainly been affected by it in that she saw injustice and it wounded her, it hurt her. And without having any of the knowledge, without having any of the Aboriginal education or perspective or background, without any of the um, good wisdom that's coming out of MF NERC, the best that she could come up with is, I, I, why don't they just stop asking for things? Why don't they just take care of themselves? Right? So she's been affected by this. She's on her own healing journey as well, or at least she, sh she should be. She needs to be. And so um, this social justice issue is one that has affected all Canadians, and, and we're all um, sort of sharing in this experience of truth and reconciliation. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tang off tangent here because um, I am taking a class, uh, or I took a class last semester on Indigenous conflict and development. Okay. And I ended up writing a paper on the Indian Act. And when you when you were talking about it, all I could think was, ooh, this is just like my paper. Um, what, right. what do you recommend as an alternative? Or what's, should we just get rid of it completely? Or... Mm try and create something else or try to adapt it or what's well, let's, your opinion well let's let's take a look at this this curious thing that we call the indian act this piece of legislation that divides canadians into us and them it's otherness turned into policy it's racism turned into policy yes right this this awful 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 inhuman disgusting thing and i i say that with um the certainty that anyone that looked at what's in that document that actually read it your stomach would turn it would it would make you want to cry it's a very upsetting piece of legislation Back in 1969, uh, Justin's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, um, on the recommendation of uh, Jean Chrétien, who was part of his cabinet, put forward something that we now refer to as the White Paper. And the White Paper sought to eliminate the Indian Act. And that moment in Canadian history is really, really important because it ended up leading to one of the, the, the largest civil rights movements in Canadian history. That was sort of our moment for Indigenous people where all of these leaders really 
sort of found their footing and found their voice and began to speak very, very powerfully about, in, pardon me, indigenous rights. You know, this is where you start to hear these amazing names like Ovid Mekerty and, and Phil Fontaine and all of these other trailblazers. And, and they stood their ground, and this ended up leading to the creation of what was called the National Indian Brotherhood, which still exists. It's now the Assembly of First Nations. Uh, but it was a huge moment for Indigenous people. And the question we might want to ask is, is why, if this white paper sought to eliminate the Indian Act, um, was it met with such resistance, such a, a huge um, calling to action for so many Indigenous people? Well, we also have to recognize that that white people sought to eliminate treaty uh, identity and treaty rights as well. And uh, it seems that for First Nations people, the right to be able to govern themselves and have their identity and be sovereign is something worth fighting for and worth dying for. The other thing that we have to keep in mind is, is this. If we were to simply just scratch out the Indian Act and make it disappear, as awful as it is, and it, it is an awful thing, as disgusting as it is, and I do believe it's disgusting, right now it's the only form or mechanism for support for First Nations communities that they receive. As, as awful as that is to say. And so what you're going to have is, is genocide. You're going to have starvation. You're going to have a tragedy of, of, uh, of a scale unlike anything that we've ever seen. And so we have to have some other way to um, fulfill our treaty obligations, to be able to, to, to achieve truth and reconciliation. But we're also going to have to have some mechanism in place to undo these generations of inequality that have been created by the Indian Act. Right? There's been a huge deficit that's been created in terms of healthcare, infrastructure, housing, policing, education. If we were to just eliminate and say, okay, well, let's carry on, that does nothing to undo the generations of inequality, injustice, um, oppression that have taken place. And so we need to be able to find some sort of way to, to address the, the historical inequality and have some sort of mechanism to, to fulfill our identity as a treaty nation moving forward. Those two things have to be in place. If you were to ask me what my recommendation is, I honestly don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that. I don't. I'm not wise enough, not intelligent enough. Maybe I'm not visionary enough. But I have to believe that the students that are being educated in our schools today are places of healing. The students that are being educated through the good work of MF NERC, I have to believe that they will be able to find the answer to that. I have to be able to believe that. They'll be able to have these conversations without otherness. They'll be able to be, think rationally, insanely about these conversations. They're going to be able to do more than what my parents' generation did, which was look at the problem and blame the people that are suffering. They're going to be able to work in partnership towards a solution. I have to believe that. If I don't believe that, I've got nothing else left. But that's my optimism. Again, I look at this next generation of students coming up at the U of W, the Red Rising group, that collective, um, and I'm filled with hope. I know that we're on our way there. Well, thank you for indulging me <laughs> in my question. About my that. pleasure. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's something that I've put a lot of thought into, but I'm, I guess I'm kind of like you and I, I don't know the answer, but mm -hmm. I believe that eventually it will be found. So Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, uh, disengage students. Right. What steps can an educator take when so, dealing with? 
Yeah. So this idea of disengaged students or, or what some people refer to as at-risk youth, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I, I've always been attracted to those kids that don't quite fit into the system. I, I love working with them. I love being around them. I love their sense of humor. I love their part of my language. I love their smart assery. I love just what a pain in the butt that they can be. I, that's that, that enthusiasm and that energy of youth that I think is just so, I don't know, it's, it's uplifting. It's exciting. And I was one of those kids myself. I was somebody that didn't fit into the school system from a very, very young age. Um, my experience was just different. I, I suppose that some people would have looked at me and said I was a bad kid or that I was a troubled kid or, or that I was, you know, just not fitting in. And so I, I guess there's a measure of empathy that I have. And early on in my education journey, I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Martin Brokenleg, who I've mentioned already. And he talked about and taught me and many others um, the model of the circle of courage which is, of course, for, for those listening, you know, this beautiful approach to education that focuses on belonging, mastery, independence, and generosity. That those beautiful qualities that come from his Lakota Sioux tradition, but I think are nearly universal, those qualities have to be in place in the lives of a child for them to develop in a healthy way. And what he says is that when one of those are missing or absent or distorted, belonging, mastery, to be good at something that is socially important, independence, the opportunity to make good decisions for oneself and generosity, this opportunity to contribute something positive, when those are missing, that's what the risk factors are. There's nothing wrong with the kid. There's something wrong with the environment. And that philosophy is something that I hold true to and something that I teach to my students even today that we don't work with bad kids. We work with kids that come from difficult environments. And for me, there was so much wisdom in that model. First off, just in terms of locus of control. I can't change people. I can't change you know, who somebody is. And if you ever hear somebody that's giving relationship advice and they're talking about somebody as if they're a fixer-upper, that never happens. That's not the way that human beings work. You can't change people. But you can change, as educators, the environment that you create for kids. And if we're putting our energies into trying to foster belonging, mastery, independence, and generosity, I think that we never feel like our wheels are just spinning, like we're doing something that's hopeless, because we have some control over that which I think is very healthy for, for educators. But also it takes the blame off the child and it allows us to have a different relationship with the behavior that we see. When a child is being disrespectful, you know, swearing, whatever the case may be, if we know that it's not coming from a bad person but from a vulnerable child who's suffering, it really changes the, changes the, the, the toolkit we have available to us. Um, our dean of education has said that uh, if, uh, if the only tool you have is a hammer, it's tempting to treat everything as if it's a nail, right? To solve problems in that one way. But if we can recognize that, that a lot of our kids are, you know, affected by intergenerational trauma, if our practice is trauma-informed, which is something that came out recently through my work with the task force on kids in care for the province, trauma-informed practice, if we understand that it's about missing attachment injuries, missing belonging, missing mastery, independence, and generosity, then there's a whole set of tools that are, are based in love and compassion and concern. And that sacred obli obligation that we have to kids to provide them with the best opportunities that we can. And my philosophy with disengaged youth is, is this, is that if there's, anything, if there's anything standing in the way of that sacred obligation to love and care for kids, be it policy, uh, institutional requirements, whatever, they've got to go. It's, it's on us as educators, on adults, to advocate for those changes so that we can go back to that basic relationship with kids. 
Um, that's my feeling. And that's the way that I approach work with, with disengaged youth. So then how do you um, specifically, I guess, draw out the talents or the gifts that you might see in mm. in, a, in a youth, be, the, be they disengaged or otherwise? Yeah. What do you do? Well, the first thing I, wanted, I, I would suggest if we were wanting to draw out the gifts or, or the talents of kids is first off, get rid of that word gifted. That word gifted actually comes from a mindset that also uh, saw kids referred to as retarded. It comes from the, the IQ model of intelligence which if I had time, I would get into this, actually has its historical origins in uh, uh, eugenics and racism and justification of slavery, all these ugly, ugly things. Um, get rid of that word. Get rid of all of that mindset. And instead operate from the idea that, that every kid deserves to have the opportunity to be good at something that matters. You know, a lot of our elders will talk about the idea of um, um, the Blue Star children or these children that have these these. Um, talents, but every kid has a talent, and, and what we want to do is is be the kind of nurturers, the kind of uh, community members that foster that talent in all children. And so for me, a big part of it is just about removing barriers, right? I think that a lot of times business as usual in school, simply because we inherited a system, can stand in the way of the expression of talents, right? It can It can be difficult to be a kid in schools. Right? And there are so many good teachers. Almost every teacher I interact with is somebody that cares about kids that are enthusiastic and they feel the same frustrations that we're kind of banging our, our, our heads against this, this system. But we have to remember that there is no system apart from people and that, that as we change business as usual in schools, as we change our practice, um, we change that system. Now having said that, um, there's a really big threat that's facing Manitoba schools that, that we have to be aware of. And I think that all of us that care about schools and teachers and children have to be aware of this. It's the threat that's coming from the political world that says that teachers need to be accountable. And I have, logically speaking, this is where you get into difficult territory, and I, I don't want this to be polarizing and I don't want to, to um, be partisan, but when you say that teachers need to be accountable, of course we want teachers that are doing their job. That's that's we have all kinds of checks and measures in place to ensure that that's taking place. What's being implied though, when I want every Manitoban to be aware of this, when we say accountability, what we mean is, or what the politicians mean right now, is through standardized tests. That's what they mean. And so we really have to be able to look at this question of if we are measuring accountability through standardized tests, accountable to whom? Because we know from statistical facts that it's not accountable to our Aboriginal kids. It's not accountable to those of lower socioeconomic status, those who come from northern Manitoba. It's not accountable to female students in schools. It's not accountable to new Canadians, to students that are EAL. So accountable to whom? Because it's not accountable to the kids that most teachers are working with. And most teachers get this. Most teachers understand this. But as we see this increasing voice for data-driven education or standards-driven education, standards as measured by these standardized tests, which I think are more a measure of culture than they are ability or whether or not a teacher is doing their job right, um, we need to uh, continue to educate voters so that they don't make the mistake of thinking that that system is going to make better teachers that system is going to choke the vitality of a lot of students. It's going to make it very difficult to live up to a lot of the values that we say that we hold dear to in Manitoba. For example, if you go to the Manitoba Education website right now and you take a look at their mission statement in that page that talks about their vision, their mission, their, their key areas, only one of the six key areas that they have identified there is measurable 
on most standardized tests, numeracy and literacy. But they also talk about education for sustainable development, which of course is going to be something that's central to our social well-being. Aboriginal education, education in the north, uh, education in response to poverty, um, rural education, all of these are things that we say that we value that aren't measured on most of these standardized tests. So again, I ask the question, accountable to whom? Because they're not accountable to what we say that we hold dear to. And so this isn't just on teachers, this is on all of us. Every community member, I think, should be talking about this, should be challenging any political party that wants to impose that sort of system on schools. We need to make sure that this conversation never disappears so that political decisions aren't made on our behalf that choke, uh, again, the vitality out of our teachers, out of our schools, out of our students. And that's me saying that. That's Kevin Lamoureux, not the politician, and I stand by what I just said. <laughs> Would you ever run for politics? <laughs> Absolutely not. I take a look at you know these these people who are, are are my contemporaries, these people that are my friends, or people that I look up to, Wab Canoe or 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 uh, you know Kevin Chief, and there's uh, Nohani Fontaine and and Althea Gabosh, the the Bannock lady. They're all running. These are people that I admire very much. They have a strength that I do not have. I <laughs> no no thank you. I'll stick to my life on campus. I, I'm a nerd, not a not a not a politician. So. I I'll stick to what I'm good at. Oh, that's good. <laughs> can you talk about culture and experience of poverty and how this um, can affect school experiences? Yeah, you know, I, poverty and the experience of poverty and how that plays into our relationships is something I think about a lot because I think it's one of the bigger issues in education. If we were somehow able to 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 control for all the effects of poverty in the lives of our, our children, what would happen to our schools? What what would those spaces look like? That would be amazing. And stepping outside of school socially, what would our uh, workforce look like? What would our, our innovations look like? What would our economy look like? Just recently, I did a, a, a TED Talk for Kildonan X. A TED Talk, Kil TEDx Kildonan, uh, which was organized by these amazing people. Uh, a fellow named um, um, uh, Cole was a part of this. It's just an uh, amazing group. Um, unfortunately, the video got destroyed, so you're never going to see it oh, online. No. Unfortunately, oh, but I that's but here that's okay because here I can talk a little bit about what I said in that yes, TED talk. Of course, yes. <laughs> and what I said basically was this: when I think about poverty, for me, poverty is a it's a relative term. And what I mean by that is that it implies a relationship. You cannot have poverty without there also being wealth. If you've worked with disadvantaged kids, you also have to acknowledge that you've worked with kids who are advantaged. It's a social relationship. It implies a relationship. It's relative. Now, I'd quickly point out, I do recognize that there is such a thing as absolute poverty. There are people on the face of the planet that have neither food nor shelter nor wealth nor anything. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, again, is in the Western industrialized world, in places like Canada, poverty does not exist without there also being wealth. It's a relationship. We would never, I hope, as educators, as ethical, moral people, we would never blame people that are living in poverty for living in poverty. We understand that there are social conditions like the Indian Act that, that make that uh, a reality. But I also want to say that we don't point the finger at people who are advantaged either. There are some people that, that feel comfortable looking at someone and pointing out the privilege that they may have. I don't. I don't feel comfortable with that. For a number of reasons. One, I don't think that it's respectful. I don't think that it's my right to do so, uh, to assume that I know what somebody else is living in their lives. But the other reason why I don't do that is because I'm genuinely interested in seeing change. And what my experience has been is that if you don't, 
If you allow people to come to their own truths rather than wagging your finger at them, they're more likely to become allies in the future. They're more likely to stand in solidarity. And so I would much rather create these spaces that are safe for us to be able to explore the possibility that sometimes culture comes with advantages and, and opportunities and sometimes it doesn't. Right? And the way I sort of explain this is, is through the eyes of my daughter. Um, I, I had this experience very early on. I was holding my daughter and I was looking at her while she was sleeping and it dawned on me that I'm never going to be able to see the world through my daughter's eyes. Okay? My daughter has two parents living at home and I didn't have that for much of my life. My daughter um, is living in a house that she's going to inherit. It's not Manitoba housing. It's not filled with cockroaches. It's not filled with bed bugs. My daughter has never gone hungry. God willing, she's never going to listen to alcoholics fighting in the middle of the night. Except for some hunters outside of Stonewall, she's never heard a gunshot. I'll never be able to see the world through my daughter's eyes. But I never want my daughter to feel guilty about that. Ever. My daughter, who's just as ethnically aboriginal as, as her cousins, um, has these advantages only because her, her father had somebody, had a moment of luck in his life where a police officer didn't finish doing what he was doing. And there were the Mary Youngs, the Myra Laramies, the people that were able to make this possible for me. She has those things because her parents love her very much and worked very hard to be able to provide her with that. I don't want her to feel guilty about that. But if my daughter ever looks down from her place of privilege, and she is privileged, as a typical middle-class Canadian, she's enjoying more privilege than most of the world is ever going to know. If she ever looks down from her place of privilege at those without and blames them for what they don't have, I feel like I'll have failed her. And so I feel like I'm on a journey with her for her to understand that you know, as she interacts with her family that may not have as much, they don't have as much not because they're bad people or they didn't work as hard, but because they didn't maybe have the same opportunities. That if she sees somebody suffering, instead of pointing at them and going, I'm sick of these drunken natives, why don't I don't want my tax dollars going to them, to think about how she can help, how she can be part of the solution. I think that we're on this journey together. And I hope that my daughter always sees herself as being somebody who's committed to social justice, to this idea of truth and reconciliation. I want that for all Canadians. Right now, the reality is that not all Canadians start at the same place. Right now, that's often racialized because of the Indian Act. We have inherited a reality, whether we've been in Canada for generations or whether our families have just come to Canada, we're inheriting a reality. We are, as my friend Mark Cooley says, children of that system. But rather than pointing fingers or blaming or being divided on, on this idea of us and them, uh, we have an opportunity. The, the 94 recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission have mapped out a, a roadmap home for us. And so we have everything we need to find our way back to the country that we always should have been, to that, that partnership, that treaty that created this nation. And that's a matter of education. That's a matter of understanding poverty in a sophisticated um, uh, ethical way and understanding that we uh, we're not just concerned citizens we're transformative citizens we have uh, the opportunity to to contribute something thank you how old is your daughter my daughter is three and a half and oh. her name is mina and many people have heard this story but i'll just tell you very quickly sure. mina m-i-i-n-a is depending on dialect it's an ojibwe word it's a niche word that means uh, blueberry oh. and so she's my little blueberry that's that's where the name comes from she uh, yeah, that's my girl that's a great name. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I guess just in closing, I'll ask you one more question okay. about um, about the new Native Studies requirement at right. the university. Um, how how are people responding? Is there backlash or? 
you know, positivity. Well, this is such a beautiful thing. Um, university, the, the whole point to a university and to faculties is for us to debate. And, and that's what happens a lot. We, you get any of us nerds together, that's, you know, faculty members, and, and we like to debate things to death. But one thing that uh, is, is sort of a, a, a point of unity for us at the last Senate meeting, I'm told, I wasn't there, but I'm told that the vote was unanimously in favor of, of this. That's one thing that everyone at that table agreed was going to be valuable. And that's so beautiful. You know, these these conversations are wonderful to see happening. Of course, there's resistance because people don't understand. But that's why those courses are going to be mandatory. And what's also interesting for me to discover is that these courses, um, they're not being created anew. They already exist. These are things that, uh, uh, sorry, offerings that uh, already exist in every department and every faculty on campus. And so all that we're doing is just sort of redirecting people's attention to be a part of this this journey, this awareness, this reclamation of our national identity. You know, it's so crazy to think about the idea of Aboriginal education being something that's added on to schools or universities. Right, right now we're, we're recording in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Three Indigenous words in a row. All of us share this identity together. And so I, I see it, and I think that most of campus is seeing it as, as basically a... Uh, a reclamation of our shared identity and an opportunity to ensure that no one walks down the street and points the finger at people who are suffering and, and, and uh, fails to see the full story of how we got to where we are. Great. Well, thank you. My pleasure. And that concludes our conversation with Kevin. Thank you again for being here and for sharing so much relevant information with us. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We hope you join us next time for another episode of Thunder Radio. 